building on what we what we talked about yesterday, and obviously what we talked about yesterday was was the gospel, how we as sinners can be brought back to true knowledge of God, to right knowledge of God, brought back to our purpose for existence. And so obviously we know that none of us in here has perfect knowledge of God yet. None of us in here is perfectly obedient to God yet. None of us in here you know, has perfect thoughts about God. Who, who in here thinks that every thought that they have about God is completely accurate? Like, I'm thinking about God exactly as I ought to be. And no, we don't have that knowledge yet. So though we have knowledge now, if we've been saved, we don't have perfect knowledge yet. So that's why we're going to talk about our greatest work in this life now. Now that we're saved, our greatest work is growing in the knowledge of God. And we call this sanctification, being made like Christ, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so that involves being brought back to a perfect obedience, a perfect knowledge of God. And not, I don't mean a comprehensive knowledge of God. I don't mean that we know everything there is to know about God because that would mean that we would have to have infinite knowledge like God does and that's not the case. But we're being brought back and conform to a knowledge where everything we do think about is, is right and accurate. And so that's what we're going to be diving into. And, and it's going to have to do a lot with the scriptures. As you can see, I put a picture up there kind of for a purpose. Um, but uh, I want to talk about a little bit about my childhood, a little bit of my testimony a little bit. I, I didn't share much about my testimony yesterday, so I'll kind of... Weave it in here and there so you guys can learn more about me. And, and feel free to ask me whatever you want when I'm not talking. Like, you know, you can come up to me and ask me whatever you want about my life, what I believe, a theological question. I don't, I don't really care. It doesn't just have to be uh, in that seminar where I do the, the Got Questions seminar today. You can ask me whatever you want. Uh, but I, I grew up in a Christian home, and I've known Christ for as long as I can remember. And so basically... How I would say that is I don't remember the time I came to the light. All that I know is that I'm in the light now. And so th that's, that's just my testimony, really. I grew up in a Christian home where my mom read the Bible every single day. I would visibly see her reading the Bible every single day. And she was constantly sharing with me what she was learning in the Scriptures. So I grew up in a household where, where the Scriptures were, were, were central, where the Scriptures were everything. And so I was learning about the Bible from... A very, very, very young age. And, and I'm sure my mom shared the gospel with me at a very, very, very young age. And, and, God, and God saved me at a very young age. And that, and that is a blessing. But I, I do remember a distinct moment, though, that's related to the scriptures. It's literally my first week of college. And so I had been kind of relying on my mom to, to feed me the word of God as I was growing up. And, and she did a great job at it. And I was learning about God through what she was teaching me. In the scriptures. But once I went to college, as you all know, we, we kind of get a freedom from our parents. We're not around our parents anymore. And, and, and I kind of had to make a decision. I, I, I don't have my mom anymore to tell me about what she's reading every single day. I have to just open up the Bible myself and start reading. And so I remember th this is the very first week. I was in my dorm room all by myself. I don't know where my roommate was, but I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab the Bible and I'll start reading it for myself. And so I opened it up to Matthew. I started reading and probably made it a chapter in and I was just, just tears, just crying. And, and they were tears of joy. They were just, this is so good. 
and, and, and I love this, and I never stopped reading the Bible since. And so the Bible is everything to my life. It's everything. And it should be everything to your life. And hopefully we can make a case for that from the Bible, about the Bible, in this talk. But another thing about my life, and this is kind of going to tie into an illustration. I want us to uh, create a mental picture uh, of what has happened in salvation and then how we are to think about our work now of growing in the knowledge of God. So I'm going to paint a mental picture for us. Um, and, and I'm going to start it with this. When I was young, I used to have night terrors. Does anybody, did anybody have night terrors when they were a kid? Yeah, like mine were bad. Like I would wake up like screaming bloody murder in my house. Sometimes, I, most of the time, I wouldn't wake up. And my mom would just say, yeah, you were just screaming like crazy last night. I wouldn't remember anything. And would walk around the house screaming, just like terrified. And sometimes that would happen every night. And so I was, didn't want to go sleep over at a friend's house because I would freak their parents out. I'd freak them out. It's just like, it's horrible. <laughs> By God's grace, I grew out of them. I'm not screaming anymore. But, but that was a part of my life when I was younger. I'd scream in my sleep. And there was a few times where I remember what I was dreaming about. There was a few times I would remember what I was dreaming about. It was a very simple dream. I was trapped in utter darkness with no hope and no way of escape. I had no knowledge of where I was at. I, 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 I was trapped. Pure darkness. And, and you could feel, in my dream, I could feel the pressure of that on me. That lack of, of hope. And, and I would wake up sometimes feeling the walls of my room looking for the way out. And then I would wake up and I would come to my senses and I'd realize I'm in my room. Here's the door I can get out. But in my dream, couldn't see anything, didn't know where I was. And that's kind of like what it's like before we come to know Christ. Trapped in darkness, no way of escape, no hope. We don't know where we're at. We don't know our purpose. We don't know our meaning. So I want us to close our eyes. Everybody close their eyes and, and, and imagine yourself in a dark room pitch dark, pitch black, no light at all. You can't even see your hand in front of your face and you have no idea where the door is. And there isn't a door. You're totally trapped. You're totally without hope. It's utter blackness. You have no knowledge of anything. And you're about at the verge of, of pure panic. Then out of nowhere, a brick from the wall is pushed in. Just a little hole. And through that hole comes a beam of light. And just imagine, just picture that beam of light coming through. We've all seen it. We're in a dark room and there's a little hole in the wall or in the window. And it just, it's, 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 a, it's like a beam. It's almost like you could feel it. And it comes through. And finally, you have a bit of knowledge. You know that there's something beyond this dark room. There's something outside of it. And through that little hole, you see a figure, someone out there who pushed in that brick. You get a little glimpse of your Savior. But you don't know him completely yet. You don't know him perfectly yet. But that beam of light reveals a, a sludge hammer in the room. So you take the hammer and then you start beating on the brick wall from the inside. At, at the same time, the man on the outside is beating from the outside and then you work together to tear down the rest of the wall brick by brick until there's no wall left and there's no darkness left and you're in complete light 
and you see your Savior perfectly, and it's Jesus. You can open your eyes. That is a depiction of what has happened to us if we're in Christ and what now we will do as we live this life on earth. God saved us. He's the one that pushed in the first brick. We're in complete darkness. But now we have the job and the privilege of co-laboring with Christ and growing in this knowledge. And so we tear down this wall of sin. It really is. Each brick is, is sin in our life. Now we have the privilege of tearing down that wall from the inside as he is still tearing it down from the outside. And we co-labor together. So our, our first salvation, we call it justification. I am justified. I am made right legally before God. I've been given the righteousness of Christ, given to me legally. It's a legal righteousness. It's an external righteousness. You can think of the righteousness of Christ that I said is given to us through faith last night. You can think of that as a, as a cloak covering you. Think of like, you guys know Harry Potter? Everybody knows Harry Potter, right? Yeah, I mean, it's Harry Potter. The cloak of invisibility. Like, he puts that cloak of invisibility on and it, and it, and it, and it masks, it, it covers, it hides everything that's underneath. He's invisible. And so, the righteousness of Christ is like a cloak that covers us. And it completely hides all of our wicked sin that's still underneath. But it is true indeed that that sin was punished on the cross. But we still have it. We all know this. We all know that we still sin. We all probably, we probably all sinned already today. Like, good grief. And so now this work is, I have an external righteousness, but now God calls me to be internally righteous as well. To be internally holy. To purge my body, my heart, my mind of sin. To purge it. To eradicate myself of sin. And it is hard, hard, hard work. It's, the, the Christian life, life isn't a lazy life. It isn't a passive life. It isn't, I'm just going to sit on the couch and take like easy type of thing. Like, you guys know as athletes that, that you know, a serious goal takes hard work. Winning a championship takes hard work, effort, efficiency, dedication, discipline. Every single day you guys do something for your sport. That's the Christian life too. Every single day we're doing something. We're fighting. We're battling. We're growing in the knowledge of God. We're beating down this wall of sin so that we may see Christ our Savior more clearly and more perfectly and more truthfully. And that is, that is what we call sanctification. So I want to read a passage for us. It's Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. And this is a prayer that the Apostle Paul says, this is my prayer for you, the Colossians, and you just I just heard about your faith. I just heard that you came to Christ. And this is now my prayer for you as new believers. He says, and so from the day we heard, he's talking about their new faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing Increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of 
of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So that is the prayer, Paul, for these new believers. You know, notice, notice the, the, that word knowledge, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. We all have that question, what is, what is God's will for my life? Well, Paul prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will for their life. And he also says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And remember, don't forget that knowledge isn't just intellectual. It encompasses our emotions. It's an intimate knowledge. It's a relational knowledge. So we're growing in our, in our intimacy and in our love for Christ. That type of knowledge. And it certainly does incorporate head knowledge as well. And so we learned the last passage we let, read last night was Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, 13 through 14, I think. And it said you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives you a new heart, gives you a new mind, gives you new will. And so now you're able to grow. Now you're able to desire God. So that is the key to our ability to now grow in the knowledge of God is the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. But like any thing that's, that we value, we, we want there to be an easy path. We want there to be an easy road. And I, you've probably all seen the Facebook ads or the YouTube ads or whatever it is, this, the easy stuff, like this, this supplement, this pill that's going to totally melt fat from your body. I've seen videos of you know, like a big beaker full of fat and somebody pours a substance in it and just disintegrates it. And if you, we put it in the supplement, you take the supplement, it's going to just melt fat from you. No. No. Sorry. That's not, that's not the case. And we all know it. No, that's probably not right. I know how to lose fat. I know how to lose weight. It takes hard work. It takes exercise daily. It takes a good diet. And it's, it's, it's consistent work. It's not just a one week and done thing or a one day and done thing. Or we see these ads on YouTube, but we've probably all seen them like, oh, these five steps to become a millionaire. Mm, okay. Buy this book, read this book, you'll be a millionaire. Okay, yeah. I mean, if it was that easy, I mean, everybody would be a millionaire. But it takes hard, hard work. Everybody who's a millionaire says it's, it's hard work, it's dedication. And, and that's true with anything that we think is, is, is valuable. We want the easy road, we want the magic pill. And we want the magic pill to our Christian life too. We just want, ah. Oh, I just want to experience God on a deeper level. I want to know God on a deeper level. I want to feel His presence on a deeper level. I want to love Him more. What's the the magic formula for this? How do I just make this happen? And there is no magic formula. It's daily discipline. Just like everything else is in life. Daily, daily discipline. But if there is a magic formula, it's, it's Deuteronomy 6... Four through nine. If there is a magic formula, this is it. But it's not that magical. And remember Exodus? Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt under their oppression. He led them into the wilderness. They went through the Red Sea. Moses parted the Red Sea. Now they're in the wilderness before they get to the promised land. God had saved them. And then so that they could stay in the presence of God, he says... Be holy as I am holy. Obey my commandments. So he gives them the law so that they can obey it, so that they can stay in his presence. And then right as the Israelites are about to go into the promised land, Moses gives a speech. 
And then he says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, the word of the law, the word that God gave Moses on the, on the mountain, the written word, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. That is the magic formula. The word needs to be everywhere in your life. Everywhere. When you go to bed, thinking about it, praying about it, meditating on it, memorizing it. When you wake up, thinking about the word again, reading the word, storing it up in your heart, writing it on your heart, talking about it with the people that you interact with on a, on a daily basis, praying the word. The word has to be central to every aspect of your life, every day of your life. It's that important. That is the magic formula. But it's not magic. We all get this. Want to be a good athlete? You've got to train. You've got to practice every day. You've got to train your body daily. So it's not something new. It's the same. Here's another text. This is Matthew 4.4. 4. So are you guys familiar when Jesus, right before he started his earthly ministry, he went out into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days straight. And while he was fasting in the wilderness, he was tempted by Satan himself. And Satan tempts him, and we're given a few of those accounts in the Gospels. But every time that Satan tempts Jesus, he, de he, he defends himself. He, 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 he resists that temptation by quoting the Old Testament. And I think that's pretty unbelievable. Jesus is God, so anything that he would have said to Satan would have been the word of God. Anything that he would have said would have been right, would have been true, would have been accurate and powerful. But what does he choose to do? He chooses to quote the written word of God, the word that we actually have in our hands today. And so what does he do? You know, he's hungry, he's been fasting, and Satan says, you know, your God, turn these stones into bread and eat them. You're hungry. Because God, Jesus was fully man, but fully God, so he still had hunger pains. He still felt the hunger that a human feels when, they're, when they haven't eaten. Imagine having not eaten for 40 days, how hungry you would be. And so the temptation was, well, turn these stones into bread, because you can do it, you're God, and eat them. And what does Jesus do? He quotes Deuteronomy 83. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If Jesus, our Creator, our Savior, saw that the Word of God was that essential in resisting temptation, then we would be fools, fools, not to see it as that essential. This is a side note too, though, with prayer. Jesus would get up early in the morning and go to a desolate place where nobody could see him before it was even light and go pray with the Father for hours. He's one with God the Father. He is God. But yet, he modeled a discipline of daily prayer. 
And again, we would be fools if we didn't think that we needed to pray consistently in our lives. So Jesus saw the Word, the written Word of God, is that essential to our lives. And that essential to fighting temptation. And then our last piece of scripture for this point, 2 Timothy 3, 17 through 18. This is, I read this last night, so this, this isn't new. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. So Paul is writing this to uh, his, his, his prodigy, really, Timothy. Knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the sacred writings, the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, all Scripture, all Scripture, everything in this book right here, is breathed out by God and profitable. Notice the words, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, you know, here's a, here's a problem with a lot of American churches today. They don't like to preach and teach the things in this book that are offensive. And that really bother people today. Because there's some really bothersome things in here. And so they stay away from that stuff because they don't want to be offensive. They want to be inclusive to everybody. But Paul clearly tells us that all Scripture is profitable for us. All Scripture is. So if, 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 if you think, if that's what you're thinking, like, oh, I, I don't need to talk about this part of Scripture because it's just offensive. You're, what you're really saying is, I don't think it would profit anybody. Because if I really believed that it would profit somebody, I would be preaching it, I would be teaching it, I would be talking about it. All Scripture is profitable. And it says that the man of God may be complete. If you want to be complete, if you want to be totally sanctified, totally made like Christ, totally uh, eradicating your, the sin in your life, you need all of Scripture. You need this book Everything in it, you need to be reading it entirely. And then it also says, when you do this, you'll be equipped for every good work. So everything that you do in your life, your ministry, preaching the gospel to people, helping people, serving people, this is what equips you for that. This is what equips you for it. That's why I don't come up here, and hopefully you don't go to churches where the guy, the pastor, just tells you what he thinks. Or gives you just good self-help stuff. Hopefully he's opening up the word and preaching the word of God. Because this is what equips you. My opinion doesn't do that to you. This is what does that for you. That's why we preach it. That's why we sing it. That's why we pray it. That's why we read it. That's why we meditate on it. That's why we memorize it. And put it on our hearts. It's that important. It's that important. You know, I was... Uh, I'm going to tell a story now. It was January, early January. Oh no, it was, uh, yeah, very early January of this year. I was down in Lawrence, Kansas, visiting Dan Rudman, who was the speaker here two years ago. And Dan Rudman wanted us to go meet one of his good friends that he goes to church with. His name is Dennis Jewell. An older man, probably early 70s, I would say. Just retired. Just retired as being a uh, uh, one of the leading scientists in the world in the pet nutrition field. So he ran one of the most prestigious labs in all the world on pet nutrition. His team of scientists were the best in the world, gathered from all over the world. So very diverse laboratory. This guy was a genius. 
is a genius. And we sat down and got breakfast with him at McDonald's at 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> That's the place. Coffee's cheap. Breakfast's cheap. Seats are comfy. No, they're not. But uh, 6.30 in the morning, Lawrence, Kansas, sitting down with one of the most brilliant scientists in the world, Dan Rubin and I, in a booth, talking about life, talking about God, talking about the Word, talking about what we're learning, talking about where we're, where we're currently suffering. And, and Dennis says this. And, and you know, if you go to Google Scholar and you type in Dennis Jewell, he has thousands of citations. If, if any of you know the science world, like research, like to have a peer-reviewed article is, is kind of the big deal. To publish research, that's the big deal. And this guy had been cited by other peer-reviewed articles thousands of times. Thousands of times. And this guy has whole books of the Bible memorized. Whole books of the Bible memorized. Stored up in his heart. And, you know, he says this. He says, I want to draw a graph for you. He's a scientist. He's a graph guy, obviously. So he takes a McDonald's napkin, one of those brown napkins. says, somebody have a pen? Dan's like, I have a pen. Dan gives him a pen. Draws a graph on the napkin. Just a regular graph, x-axis, time spent in the word, y-axis, godliness. He goes, in all my life, I found this to be true. That it's just the case, if you spend more time in the word, the more godly you will be. And that's how it is. Very simple. And so he drew a line, a trend line, a regression line. The positive, more time spent in the word, the more godly that you are, the more that you have the knowledge of God. He says, this is just the way it is. Does anybody know what R squared is? A few of you, R squared. So if we were to plot data points on this, on this graph and each of us was a point, a data point, you know, where would we fall? Would some of us have spent like no time in the word of God, but yet somehow be really godly? And then we'd be an outlier? And if that's the case, if we have outliers all over the place, then the R-square would be like nearly zero. But if, if, if all of us, is, if, it, if it's true that it's just like the more time you spend in the Word, the more godly you are, then the R-square would be nearly one, which means it's, it's like just consistent. It's a consistent line. He said in the R-square, it is extremely high. Nearly one. And that's just the way it is. So if you want to be godly, if you want to experience God more, if you want to grow in your intimacy with God more, the only way that you're going to do it in this life is through this. If you want to put this aside and pursue intimacy and experience some other way, go for it, but it won't work. And it'll be superficial and it'll be fake and it'll be counterfeit. It's crazy what the human body is able to think is real. It's unbelievable. I'll share one more story with you. I was listening to a debate between an atheist, and I think it was actually Jordan Peterson. Two non-Christians, Peterson kind of went to the Christian side and this atheist was one of the leading atheists. I don't even remember his name. And he said he grew up a Christian and he was at a conference when he was 16 years old and the, the, the music was amazing and he had this amazing experience. This amazing experience and there was an altar call, and he, he, you know, he gave his life to Christ, and it was just an amazing experience. And, and his friend said, 
you're experiencing the Holy Spirit. That's God. That's evidence that you're saved. A week later, he's 16 years old. He's driving in his car. He's blaring 70s rock or 80s rock. Secular music. Got the same exact experience. The same feeling. He says, that was fake. That, that, that religious experience I had, that was fake. This stuff isn't real. Became an atheist. Is still an atheist today. He's old now. It's because he put his hope and his faith in a, in a, in a feeling, in an experience. And we do this a lot today. And we hear it a lot today. Why do you go to that church? Oh, well, the worship is great. The worship is great. Yeah, it's good to have good worship. No doubt about it. We like good music. That is not why you should be going to that church. You should be going to that church because they preach the very word of God because this is it. This is it. There's no other way. And so if you want to push this out of your life, go for it. But what you think is real will probably be counterfeit. And that stinks. We want the real deal. We want real experience. Because there is such thing as real experience. I'm not saying experience is bad or wrong. I'm saying we should want it. But if we want it, the only place we're going to get it is in this book. That's it. Here's three questions that I hear a lot today. And I just answered this first one. How do I grow in my intimacy and experience of God? The Bible. It was in my notes here. Question number two. How do I know God's will for my life? We hear that a lot. We, we answer that question, or we ask that question a lot. I still ask that question. Answer, the Bible. The Bible tells us what the will of God is for our life. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 And this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. And he lists a bunch of other things. That's it. We don't need to really worry about where we work or where we live or things like that. God will lead us. God will guide us. But his will for our life is that we be conformed to the image of Christ. That we grow in the knowledge of God. And that, this is how we do that. This is how we do that. What do we, what's the greatest command? Love the, Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. What does the Bible say? Jesus says, and this is how you love me. By obeying my commandments. How do we know the commandments of God? By reading the Bible. Pretty simple. It's pretty simple. But it's, it takes dedication. It takes hard work. So finally, that's all an introduction to our, our text. <laughs> but uh, this is our main text. It's Luke 24. But we will end on this too. And so we're going to read a large portion of Luke 24. It'll be on the slides behind you. Uh, I'm going to read it out of my Bible here. Oh man. I'm just going to set this down. So this is, this is the last chapter in Luke. Jesus is, had just resurrected from the dead. And after Jesus resurrected from the dead, he spent a period of 40 days on earth interacting bodily with the disciples. 
The Bible even says, Paul says that 500 people witnessed him in this period of time. So there's eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus, which is actually a really important thing in an, in an apologetic argument. People want to doubt the resurrection of Christ. You say, well, there's 500 witnesses. And Paul wouldn't have wrote that in a period of time where those people were still alive because you could just go to that person and see if it was true. But he wrote it because it was true. So people he interacted with, people, and, and, and this is right when he was resurrected. Some of the women that followed him went to the tomb, and it was empty. And they, they were like flabbergasted. And they told the disciples, and some of them went. Peter ran to the tomb, saw that it was empty, saw the, the cloth there, and just like couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. And then we'll pick up the story in verse 13 on the road to Emmaus. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these? Wow. These days? <laughs> and he said to them, What things? And they said to him, he's kind of plain ignorant. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And they said to him, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer for these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at a table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they rec recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them, gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So, that's an interesting story. And there's, there's a few things that I want to pull out for us. The first is this. Jesus kept them from recognizing him. And so, we can often think, we can often think, wouldn't the best thing 
right now would be if, if Jesus came bodily and appeared right here, right before our eyes. Here he is. He could do that. Right before our eyes, Jesus in the flesh. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be awesome? He did that with these two disciples walking down the road right there before their eyes, but he kept them from recognizing him. Why would Jesus keep them from that type of experience? Why would he do that? Well, he tells us, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He keeps them from, from experiencing his presence because they had failed to trust in the word of God. They had failed to believe what the Word had said about Him. So then what does He do? Takes the Bible, takes the Old Testament, says, and beginning with Moses, when He says Moses, like that's what we went through last night, Genesis, Exodus, those first five books of the Bible were written by Moses, starting with Moses, and all the prophets... Our Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he went through and showed them what the scriptures said about him. And then, later on that night, then finally does he reveal himself to them. They recognize him and then he disappears. And so, what does this teach us? This teaches us that we cannot separate an experience of Christ, an experience of God from the scriptures. We can't do it. And if we do it, just it loses everything. Jesus did not want them to experience him apart from the scriptures. It's his desire that we only experience him in the scriptures. We will experience Christ Physically, bodily. We will be in his presence one day. We will see him. We will, we'll be able to touch him. We'll be able to hug him. We'll be in his presence forever in glory. But that's in the new heavens and the new earth. But that, that, that has not yet come. It will come soon. It will come soon. But right now, we are living in this time of battling our flesh, growing in the knowledge of God, and then as we will talk about tomorrow, spreading the knowledge of God around the world. And right now, God has said that you experience me through the word, through the written word. That is how you do it. Don't look for any other way. Because you'll be deceived. You will be deceived. One last text. It's very, very similar. This is the Apostle Peter. He writes this in his epistle. So we're going to quickly flip to... Second Peter. Chapter 1, starting in verse 16, it says this. Now, I better preface this, otherwise it won't make sense. Are you guys familiar with the Mount of Transfiguration? Some of you probably are. So... In Jesus' time of ministry, he took three of his disciples, one of them was Peter, up the mountain, and then they saw Jesus in his glory. For a moment, the veil was taken away, and they saw him in his glory as he shone. 
And it was unbelievable. And they basically, they fainted. They got knocked out and they woke up. Moses and Elijah were there. And then a voice came down from heaven. It was the voice of God the Father. That's what, you, that's what Peter is writing about here. That experience on that mountain with Jesus and God the Father. So he says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. They saw it. They saw the glory of Jesus. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. They heard the voice of God the Father. They heard it with their ears. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we, we, we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic, here it is, listen, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, by, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he says, I had this experience. I heard the voice of God the Father from heaven. I saw Jesus in his glory. But we have the word more fully confirmed. This is more fully confirmed. This is that trustworthy. That trustworthy. I might be duped by an experience. I will not be duped by this. This speaks truthfully. It's fully confirmed. So trust it. So trust it. And it's going to say some things that you aren't going to agree with right away. But realize that your flesh and your sin, it doesn't want to agree with it. It doesn't want to. So if it jives with you a little bit, if it, if it doesn't jive with you, if it, it rubs against you, maybe that's a good, that's good. Because what does it say? The, the Bible is profitable to correct you, to rebuke you. To admonish you. And so we can expect it to do that to our lives. But this has been fully confirmed. This is the word of God. It should be central to our lives. Let's write it on our hearts. Let's pray.